Darnell Williams at the tailback. They'll hand it off to Williams up the middle. 25. Cuts it inside. 30. 35. 40. There goes Cadillac. To the 50. To the 40. To the 30. To the 20. To the 15. 10. Go crazy, Cadillac. Go crazy. Touchdown. Now they can play a little safer. But they're not going to. Nix is back. Throws it downfield. Caught. Touchdown, Williams. A 20-yard attempt. Josh Harris, the snapper. He'll call to the place. He'll hold it. Byron waits for the snap to the place. There it is. The kick is up. The kick is good. Auburn wins. 22-19. What's going on, everybody? And welcome to another episode of the Auburn Today podcast. As always, my name is Noble. I'm joined here with my co-host, Wheeler. Today we have a very, very interesting podcast coming up. We've got a lot of news that came out in Auburn in the past couple days, um, but obviously the biggest news dropped you know, a couple hours ago. TJ Finley has been named the starting quarterback for the 2022 football season. He will be taking the first snap against Mercer in week one. We're just going to jump right into it. Wheeler, give us where your thought process is right now. Did I mean obviously we've talked about this a couple of bit on the a little bit on the past few podcasts we expected it just TJ Finley QB one how you feeling? He's the best option right now. As of today, there is no funny business going on. Like he is head and shoulders better than the other guys as far as what you see on the practice field. So it makes sense why he's the guy. Um, he does look a little bit more mobile than last year, and he does know the offense. I think he is a serviceable game manager at this point that can win seven, maybe eight games, assuming he doesn't get any better. Um, is it possible that he is not the starter the entire year, even if he doesn't get hurt? I see that as a distinct possibility if Robbie's able to start throwing the ball a little better. Um he definitely doesn't have the upside Robbie does, but as of right now, Robbie is just too inconsistent throwing the ball to get put out there. Um, I mean, I think as far as the decision goes of who it is, it is no surprise, um, and it's not odd. I, I, Why is everything under Brian Harson a poverty program situation? Like, Announcing the starting quarterback by leaking it to a national writer and not telling the actual quarterbacks. I like it is astounding to me because he says things in his press conference like this has to be done the right way. This is not the right way, bro. It's just not. It's it's never right to just leak the information to a national writer. I, heck, it's not even right to leak it to a local writer. Instead of telling the guys first, I don't understand why everything that accompanies this man has drama. Like, it's almost like he is trying to do stuff to just piss people off right now. And I'm not convinced that that's not the case. Like, I'm seriously not convinced that he's not mad that Alan Green was not retained. And so he was, you know, covering for his hot tub homie and decided that he would leak it to ESPN that TJ was going to be the starter. Um, I just, it's the strangest situation to me that that's what we're doing now, that 
We're not having meetings with the quarterbacks to tell them what's happening. You just leak it to Chris Lowe, who has no affiliation apparently with Auburn. Um, I don't know. It's frustrating. But, I mean, Noble, what do you think about – what do you think about it as far as him being the quarterback and then the way that it got announced? I think the way it got announced is bad. I, I, I really just, that's just another, just another log on the fire that I was just like that. You just can't do that. I just really disagreed with that whole situation. Really was not happy about that. Um, but with him getting announced, I do think that it, here's the thing. It was, I mean, it was obvious. At the practice yesterday, it was obvious that TJ was going to be the starter. So this is not necessarily news. I mean, in the past, you know, few days, it's it's become obvious, you know, Calzada was buried under the depth chart last. I mean, from the difference from the practice a week and a day ago compared to the one yesterday, it was night and day. Calzada was nowhere close to even seeing meaningful minutes on the field yesterday. So that was something that was a little surprising when you walked in about how far Calzada had fallen in that short amount of time. But it was obvious that TJ is going to be the starter. TJ, I will say, he is much less statue-like. I mean, he, there were, you know, and granted, I think a lot of that is a, kind of a trial-by-fire kind of thing. Yesterday at the practice, he was running for his life the whole practice. The offensive line was letting everybody through. I mean, it was, it was, it, it was concerning. It, it, it made you less concerned about the quarterbacks and more concerned about the offensive line because the quarterbacks were running for their lives the whole time. And I really think that is something that is, that was the kind of the factor that's pushing Robbie into more of the discussion. Because when you watch Robbie in accuracy drills, you watch him in drills on air, you watch him even on seven on seven, you're like, this guy is nowhere close to a passer as even TJ Finley, but his legs are good. He can run, he can scramble. And I think that if the coaches are imagining that the offensive line is going to collapse all the time, then you're going to need Robbie to be a mobile, get out of the pocket, make some stuff happen kind of guy. So I do agree with what we've seen. I do agree that TJ will be the starter. Yesterday, TJ looked like the guy that should be the starter. He knows the offense the most. He did make some nice throws. He did throw that pick six, but I mean – you're not going to expect this guy to be a Heisman candidate. You're not going to expect him to be even a really good quarterback. The goal, and we've said this before, we need TJ to elevate his game from meh to serviceable. And that is the biggest goal for this season. That is the biggest hope that he has done in the offseason. And the biggest thing that we're going to be looking for in the first two weeks is has TJ elevated his game to the point that he is not a liability? And if he's not a liability, we'll be okay. We're not going to win a ton of games, but we will win enough games that Brian Harson can still be the coach by next season. And I firmly believe that. I think that if TJ can be a serviceable quarterback, make the throws that he's expected to make, he doesn't have to make any crazy throws, just don't turn it over, get the throws you're expected to make, make it that the defense can't stack the box, let Tank and Jarquez be – the stars of the offense, they're going to get the most yards, they're going to get the most first downs, they're going to get the most touchdowns, but make it that they have a chance to do their best and make it that they're not able to put eight guys in the box to stop those guys because they know that you can't throw the ball. If TJ can do that, I still think we can win some games. If you look at our schedule, Penn State and LSU both have question marks on them. Missouri's not that good at football. Like, 
the chance, you know, everyone's been looking like this. Oh, start five and zero is the big goal. Five games at home, that is still within sight. I'm not saying I don't feel great about those games, but I am saying I will be disappointed if we lose those games. Like I'm looking at with the pre in preseason. If you told me right now the get the the, the outcome of the season, and you say, hey, we're going to lose to Georgia and Alabama, I'll say, okay. They're better the teams than we are. I would expect that they're a better football team than we are. If you tell me we're going to lose to Penn State and LSU, I'm not going to be happy because they are not better football teams than we are. They have better quarterbacks than we do, but we are a better football team than they are. And so I think that's the biggest thing, that if we can win the games that are legitimately in sight to win and they are teams that we have a similar talent level to, I still expect to win those games. I expect the home crowd to be another factor. I just, I think that the quarterback situation is not going to be good. But what we have not seen is will the quarterback situation become a liability or will it just be a handicap? I think that's the biggest thing that we're going to learn this week. And I think the offensive line will be better than they showed in practice yesterday because. I mean, other than Alabama and Georgia, that's probably the best defensive line they're going to play. It's a defensive line that also knows all their plays, has seen their plays for four years, like knows every single thing about those guys, was not the entire starting offensive line, did not have the starting running backs out there. Like the offensive line was put in the worst possible situation. Which is fair. That's fair. And so, yeah, they didn't look good, but, like, would anybody really look good in that situation against that defensive line where they know exactly what you're doing? I mean. I, I think the biggest – I think that the biggest thing to look for this season and the biggest – even a potentially a bigger question mark than the quarterbacks is how Tate Johnson can acclimate himself to being a starting center in the SEC. Because yesterday it seemed like a lot of the pre- – mo- I mean, I would say about 80, 80, 85% of the pressure was coming right up the middle. And a lot of the time was coming off of a line – I mean, there were three separate plays that are just off the top of my head where either Owen or Eugene Asante were running straight up, untouched, and they were in the backfield as the quarterback was catching the ball. That is something that you don't see under Brahms because he's seen a lot of SEC football. He's pointing out the guys that are blitzing – the offensive line, for the most part, knows who they have. I think that Tate, and we talked about this a little bit last week, I think that Tate Johnson and Nick Brahms, purely blocking-wise, are not going to be that different. I think the biggest thing is how quickly can Tate get to the point that he's calling out the blitzes, he's running that offensive line. If he can get to that point, I think the offensive line will be that they can even out and be okay. But if he still doesn't, if he can't identify a blitz, that might be some problems because then the quarterback's got to worry about, you know, my offensive line might not block the middle linebacker that's blitzing. And again, the middle linebacker knows where the weak spot on the O-line is going to be. Like, they know exactly what the protection is because this was the protection that probably got installed the first week of spring ball. Because if you're going to run – an offensive play in an open scrimmage a week before a game or an open 11 v 11 team period, it's not going to be one that you're, is game plan towards Mercer or San Jose State or Penn State. It's literally going to be 
what they ran all during spring practice, all during a day, you know exactly who the offensive linemen are supposed to pick up and you know where the weak spot is going to be. So again, it's impossible to tell from that kind of situation how good the offensive line actually is, or even if he made the right calls um, because they can just come in hot because they don't have to respect their running back. Or, you know, like uh-huh. they know what's going on in like a supernatural way. And that's what keeps defenses from doing that is that you call plays that fool the linebacker and make them have a split second check up and then Tate Johnson has time to get over and make his block. But when yeah. the guy's already five yards behind the line, of, I mean, cause some of those, you could tell they knew the play because they were in the backfield while they were handing it off. Mm-hmm. And like Auburn plays some really bad football teams that come into Jordan Hare stadium at the beginning of the season. And they don't do that to those teams. Yeah. Like you could watch the Florida A&M uh, North Carolina game last night. Florida A&M had none of their starting offensive linemen academically qualified. So they are a level down in football and have all backup linemen, and that was not happening. And you can't tell me that Auburn just has that low a talent. Like, no, they know exactly what the play is. And so when you know what the play is, yeah, you look like you're otherworldly. Um, so I'm not – I'm not concerned that the offensive line has regressed to the point that I think a lot of people thought it had yesterday, because I just think that the situations that they were put in were literally impossible situations against some of the best defenders in the SEC. And I do agree with that. I think that is a perfectly fair point, but I do. I think that it will be not as noticeable. Like, obviously, like you were saying, they know the play day in, day out. You're not going to notice it. But the thing that you might have to worry about is for those conference play third and long, you know, by the time you're in the fourth game of the season, a lot of the time, if it's third and 11, you have a decent idea of what they're like. If you know they're throwing the ball, you know where you can blitz, you know where the hole's going to be. So I do think that there are, I think the offensive line was put in a very difficult spot yesterday. I do think there's room to improve, but I, I agree with you. I don't think they're nearly as bad as they were perceived to be last night. Um, but that kind of, you know, kind of, I mean, we've talked about quarterbacks a decent amount, um, and we'll continue to talk about them a little bit later, but there were some other interesting, uh, observations from yesterday. And obviously, you know, we were texting about it a decent amount yesterday. Um, Tarvarsh Dawson looking like he might be one of the big time, you know, one of the, the starters. He spent a good amount of time with the ones yesterday. Camden Brown, uh, was kind of, Going in and out with the ones and the twos looks like a common uh, common target. Wheeler, just kind of give us your thought process. We, you know, you've talked about Camden Brown, uh, how you think he's going to be a really big stud, and I'm, you know, I, I'm definitely in the same boat with you on that. But what wide receiver has that has that kind of that mentality for you changed, or do you still think Camden Brown will be the guy for this Auburn receiver group, or do you think it could be? A Tarvarsh Dawson as a big-time playmaker, do you think it could be uh, Shedrick Jackson or Xavion Capers, possession guys? Who do you think the most reliable starting wide receiver will emerge to be through the length of the season? Okay, I think the most reliable target that they're actually going to go to is going to be Shank. Um, but as far as receivers, yeah, I'm still in on Brown especially once we get to games that might be a little bit more challenging. Um, but, I mean, heck, 
I mean, we can go ahead and just – sorry to redirect. Mercer did put up 63 points last night, which they were playing against a really bad Moorhead State team. I mean, really, really bad. bad. Um, but 63 points is 63 points. Um, I don't know. I That concerned me a little bit, but on the other hand, I feel like seeing a team put up 63 points at least locks your guys in a little bit. Yeah. You know, I think the defense may pay a little bit more attention in this week's meeting when it's like you're watching an offense that scored 63 because you know they're going to watch that film. And so the the film that you're watching of guys, they're all balling out. Um, so that that's mildly concerning. Um, anyway, I still think it's Brown. Uh, it's unfortunate. It seems like Coy Moore has kind of been out of practice this week with COVID. Um, and that's not something you want out of a transfer. I could see him coming on a little bit towards the end of the season. Definitely. Um, but, and I hate to just talk in circles, but Shedrick, it's like we said, Shedrick has great games against teams like Mercer and San Jose State, where he is far more athletic than the DBs he's playing. And then when he gets into SEC or like playing Penn State and he's not, incredibly faster than everybody else he kind of starts to struggle a little bit so as far as the first two games I think you'll see Cedric as far as later in the season I think you'll see one of the transfers or Xavion step up yeah I could definitely see that and the the interesting thing with Cedric is that I would say hands wise he's one of the more consistent guys I'd say he's the best blocker in the room his route running's good he's smart he knows the offense but it's like you said, just from a pure athletic standpoint, he is not above and beyond what a corner is. And I think that's a difficult part in the SEC that it's like you just have so many athletic freaks on offense that it's just like you have a guy that's a pretty dang good athlete. He's just not that just, wow, this guy is insane. It, it does does hurt him to uh, get open a little bit. But I do agree with you on a lot of that. Um Another thing that, you know, this was an observation uh, from yesterday's practice. Javaris Johnson is really just, he is a, he's a guy that a lot of people were expecting to kind of make that jump from last year to this year. And really, he looks like a very similar player. I think he's a really, I think he's an athletic player. He's fast as lightning. I think he's a really good player. I still have doubts about his catching ability. And I'll be interested to see if Hilliard is more of a, I'll be interested to see if Hilliard is okay with putting guys out there that are not the best at catching the ball if they're just electric playmakers, or if he's going to be a guy that you got to know the offense, you got to be able to catch, and if you can get open good, he'll put you out there. You know, I think that'll be the interesting thing to see what his kind of style is on how he arranges his receivers. And I think that Torvars Dawson is a guy that really is very similar to Javaris Johnson. It just seemed like last year, Johnson knew the offense better than Dawson did, but Johnson really has inconsistent hands. So I think that's kind of the the the, the difficulty with them. And then Coy Moore is right there with them. And I think that Coy Moore has got to learn the offense. But the difference is Coy Moore seems to be in the same position as the other two, but the difference is he hasn't been here for two years. So I'm, I'm wondering if, if Coy can, as the season goes on, start picking stuff up and come on later. I could definitely see that. Um, and I think he's a really, really solid player. And I do think you'll see him 
uh, on special teams as well. Like he he'll see the field whether it's as a as a starting receiver, as a rotational receiver, as a special teams guy. You'll see Coy Moore on the field. Well, I'm glad that talking season is almost over. I'm really excited <laughs> to finally just see them go out on the field and yeah. the speculation at least a little bit. I, I definitely agree with that. And, you know, adding with some speculation, it just seems like Nick Brahms has definitely just kind of continued to move down a path that points more that we will not see him this season. And obviously none of that's confirmed, but just kind of reading between the lines and just kind of looking at the deeper meanings of some of the things that you just see in practices, it seems like he will not be present. So, you know, it kind of amplifies what we talked about a little earlier with Tate Johnson needing to step up. Um, but it seems like Nick Brahms will, so far, is the only significant injury. Uh, Zykevius Walker and Marquise Gilbert missed yesterday's practice due to injury. Um, they should be ready for week one. Tank Bigsby and Jarquez Hunter were held out of practice for rest purposes. Austin Troxel was a little banged up, but he should be ready for week one. Um, Wheeler, what are some of the when, – when you when you think of depth, Obviously, we've talked. I feel like we've talked pretty in length about defense and defensive depth, and even with the linebackers, you know, you and I talked about it a decent amount with Cam Riley looking to be the starting linebacker next to Owen Papo. You got Eugene Asante behind them. Defense seems to have some depth. Offensively, are you incredibly concerned about potential injuries on the offense, or are you kind of in the camp? You know, there's definitely a camp of Auburn fans that their thought process is, well, nobody's good, so the backups can't be much worse. So where, where are your, where's your kind of thought? And obviously this is kind of excluding the running back room because we, we've talked about the running back room extensively. That's a deep room. But think of the offense minus the running backs and really the tight ends as well. Are you concerned about depth or are you just kind of like, a lot of the guys in the room are similar play styles, playmakers, talent levels. Just kind of what's your thought about the offense? I think the two tackles and the center are where you cannot afford to lose another guy because um, your two tackles have been established all of camp. Um, and your center, you're already on your backup. The guards have been rotating. I mean, even yesterday, we're a week out from game one, and the starting guards have not really been established 100%. So if one of them goes down, I mean, a week into camp, a week away from the game, you weren't sure which one was better. You're not going to see a big drop off. Tackle, I think you'll see a pretty significant drop off. Again, center. Um, I don't even know who would be the backup center. I my guess is that they would move a guard over. It would center. either be, in all likelihood, it would, it would either be Jaleel Irvin sliding in as the center. Or it would be Brandon Council just moving from guards. And my, I, I, I personally believe that uh, Council and Jones will keep the guard spots like they did last year. So I think that if I personally think Council will beat out uh, Cam Stutz for the left guard spot. So if Tate Johnson gets hurt, you either put Jaleel Irvin at center or you just slide Brandon Council over, play center, and then you put Stutz in at guard. So. I think from a blocking perspective, if Tate Johnson goes down, it's not that bad, but it's also like, you know, a lot of the time if you're playing left guard instead of center, you know, a lot of the time it's because the guy that's playing center is better at picking out the blitzes. Right. So those are the positions that 
I'm concerned at with depth. Other than that, though, I mean, barring like just a catastrophic rise in injuries, I don't think there's any position that somebody getting hurt really changes the outcome of the year. Yeah, I, I definitely think that that's a, that's a fair assessment. And so before we go into uh, our fi- our kind of next topic, and then, so we'll, we'll talk about the you know uh, AD situation, then come back to the Mercer preview. But just our last thing about just kind of talk Auburn football, just give us your preseason prediction. One group on offense and one group on defense that you think not necessarily will be the best, but will be the the biggest how should I, the the biggest weapon for SEC play on offense and defense as a position group on offense and defense running back and D line easy for me I think that those are the you, we have a lot of position groups that are serviceable and you have to have somebody that's not serv- that is higher than serviceable to actually win games and those are the two position groups that not only don't lose you games but actually go out and win you games um running backs are deep uh very talented same with the defensive line um i think that the pass rush this season is going to be significantly better I, I I would in fact I would expect probably five or six sacks in both of the first two games, at least. I think it's going to be a sack party in the first couple games. Yeah, um, I completely agree with that because I I don't think that I think that they're going to be very surprised by the the rise in Ekuliota. Um, and that I think that that's just going to be bringing four. I don't see them bringing a lot of blitzes against Mercer and San Jose State unless stuff is really going bad. Um, and, I mean, honestly, Mercer did not throw for that many yards. To score as many points as they did last night, they didn't – I want to say they threw for, like, 250 yards. You can pull up the stats and tell me if I'm wrong. But I want to say they rushed for, like, 360 or 370. I mean, they rushed for, like – a pretty absurd amount of yardage. I should probably have this pulled up before I just start spewing it out. But yeah, so uh, Mercer, their starting running back had, or the guy with the most yards had five carries for 140 yards and two touchdowns. Their backup guy had 13 carries for 96 yards. Uh, their quarterback was 11 for 17, 248, four touchdowns. I mean, this was the equivalent of the varsity team playing the JV at your local high school. And the JV had a couple guys out sick. I mean, this is – it was a beatdown. Mercer was just playing around with them. It was just – it was a beatdown of epic proportions. Mercer had a receiver, five receptions, 192 yards. So, uh, I know that, you know, that, that was a lot of numbers there. But that means that 248 of the starting quarterback's yards, that was the, the total yards he had. 192 of that went to one guy. I mean, that's – that's a lot to be to be perfectly uh, mathematical. That is seventy-seven percent of his yards went to one guy. So that uh, that's kind of a writing on the wall. You stop that guy, you stop the run. Their offense is uh, you know, stalling stalling a decent amount. So I definitely think that that'll be a, a kind of a matchup to watch, especially. And yeah, I feel um, like so. 
I mean, running, they rushed 360 yards. Can you imagine rushing for 360 in a game? Um, but they did have two fumbles. How do you give up 63 points when you have two takeaways from the other team? Like, that's honestly impressive. They had no time of possession, hardly. They only had the ball for 20 minutes. They had the ball a third of the game and scored 63 points and had two fumbles. The team rushing average was 9.4. They played, let's look at this, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. Ten different backs got a carry, and the team average was 9.4. That is almost every time you run the ball, you get a first down. I mean, this was an absolute beatdown of epic proportions. Moorhead State would quite possibly lose by 100 points if Auburn played. If Auburn did not put the threes in by the second quarter, they could score 100 points on these guys. It was an absolute beatdown. And obviously, you know, scoring 63 points is good. Like, that proves that your offense is somewhat competent. They held Moorhead State to 13. Like, yeah, they did fine. Moorhead State's players did terrible. Mercer is a fine football program. If Auburn does not beat Mercer by at least 35, we should be a little worried. I mean, Mercer is not a good football team. Now, obviously, Moorhead State is a significantly worse football team. Auburn is much more talented than Mercer. This game should not be close. Don't look at this game and think, oh, well, Mercer looked great against Moorhead State, and if, they, if they're only losing by 17 at halftime, don't be like, oh, well, Mercer looked good last week. No, Mercer is a bad football team. If Auburn is not blowing Mercer out, there are some problems. We should also start with really good field position. They had two points, and they averaged – 35 yards each. Or no, sorry, they averaged 22 yards. One, Their longest punt was of 35 yards. That means he had a punt for 35 yards and a punt for nine yards. And that, that'll do it. That'll so do it. Look for good field position. Look for uh, hopefully stopping them on defense. I mean, and it'll be great. Auburn. I feel like run stopping should be this team's specialty. Um, Nice little physical game. And, I mean, Moorhead State's offense was just terrible. And look for Auburn to possibly not return a punt until the second week of the season. Uh, Yeah, I, I can't imagine that this guy's going to go from a long of 35 yards punting to blasting one. Um, you can't you can't imagine so, but that that game will be next Saturday, six p.m. Central Time. Will be a whiteout. Um, obviously, that'll just be a really exciting game. First game of the season. It's always fun, whether the team's good or not. But I feel like this can kind of uh, segue into somewhat more of the off the field talk um, with the big news of Alan Green and Auburn parting ways. Alan Green has been the athletic director at Auburn University since twenty eighteen. Um, Wheeler, just kind of give us your initial thoughts about that situation, the surprise that kind of arose uh, when the news came out, as sudden as it did. This was something that some people kind of, you know, we kind of saw the writing on the wall in the past few months, but it was definitely a surprise that just kind of happened, and it just kind of came out of nowhere. But just what were your thoughts about that whole situation and Happy, sad, kind of indifferent. Just kind of what, what, what are your thoughts about the uh, that Alan Green situation? I'm 
totally indifferent. Um, anyone that has really been paying attention to anything has noticed that Alan Green's contract was going to run out at the end of the football season and that Auburn was clearly not extending him. Um, this is not a just Auburn being Auburn. They're not paying him a buyout. Like, they kept him under the con. I don't understand why Auburn people think that if somebody moves on, like, it's a bad thing. Um, Allen got hired by a president that was potentially the worst president this university's ever had. So we have the worst president ever hire a guy from Buffalo. Um, he's known for a while that Auburn's not going to retain him, and he hasn't gotten a good job yet. So that should be another indication. I mean, heck, maybe he's going to come out and be the next big athletic director. But as of right now, I mean, it's been public knowledge that Allen has been looking for other opportunities for a while and just hasn't been able to find anything. Um, it's also been somewhat public knowledge, I feel like, that Allen has been kind of a figurehead. Like, a lot of people just don't think that Allen was – they think that Allen was hired by the last president, not necessarily, you know, as the best choice that they could have hired. Um, he's not from the South. He has no connections to the South. Like – Dude went to Notre Dame and then Buffalo and played for the Yankees. Like, everything that he's done has been in the northern part of the country. And the only hires that he's made have been his buddy from the hot tub and the women's basketball coach, which, I mean, does anyone really care? I mean, no, they don't. Nobody cares who hires the women's basketball coach. People are saying – Allen's led us to all-time highs in athletics. Look at the basketball and baseball team. Guys, Allen hasn't done a daggum thing for the basketball or baseball team. He's posted a video saying, Bruce, I love you. We signed you to a contract. Wow, good job, Allen. That was a no-brainer that you signed the guy that's been the best basketball coach in your history to an extension. And then, what? No-brainer. You didn't fire Butch Thompson when he lost every game by one point. Like, Allen has done nothing interesting at Auburn. He's gone and just shook hands with everybody, had a smile on his face, hadn't really tanked the program, but also hasn't – he's kind of had a bad run media-wise. I mean, the athletic department has not been putting its best foot forward, and so I don't know why it's a surprise that Allen's gone. Like, everyone has reported Alan Green's not getting retained. And then it gets announced, Alan Green resigns, and people are like, oh, just Auburn being Auburn, what are we doing? And I'm like, what? I, I Super confusing. Yeah, and just to kind of build on what you're saying, I got so many people, like, I, I received so many DMs the day it happened, and they were like, you know, Auburn's reached new heights, like, under him, like, in all these sports. And I was like, well, the basketball coach was there before he was. The baseball coach was there before he was. The gymnastics coach was there before he was. Like, all the all the sports that are doing good, the coaches have been here. Like, that, they were, they've all been lasting longer than Allen. And, honestly, the only hires that Allen has made are people that almost got fired. Like, I mean, obviously, Johnny Harris is not really close to getting fired, but she's also only been here for a year, and she inherited a program that was as low as it's ever been. But, I mean, 
when you look at Harson, you're like, yeah, a lot of the fans really do like Harson. That is true. Harson was very close to getting fired after one season. When a football coach gets fired after one season, it's usually not a great sign. And, you know, something that I thought was interesting when, you know, a lot of people were saying, like, oh, what does this mean for Harson and, you know, everything? Honestly, I I don't think Alan Green, first of all, Alan Green had no pull. Like, if if Harson was going to get fired, Alan Green was not the guy that was going to keep him here. And honestly, if anything, I think that it might help Brian Harson that Alan Green is getting fired. Like, I, I honestly think that if anything, it's going to help him because it makes fans rally around him more because they have the common enemy. The big bad boosters have been, I mean, they are hated by the majority of the fan base now for all this stuff that has happened in the past few months that I wouldn't say the boosters are necessarily wrong in their decision-making. Like, the Harson thing was obviously, that was just, there was just a lot going on there. Alan Green probably, I mean, look, Alan Green is a great human being. He is a great man. I just don't think he's the best athletic director that we could have had. But everyone's, you know, running to Alan Green's aid and saying that the boosters are terrible, the boosters are running Auburn into the ground and all this. It's like, whether that's true or not, Harson's fan support is about as high as it's ever been. Like, People like the guy because they all hate the boosters, and the boosters don't like this guy. So it seems like a lot of the fans are just like, oh, well, the boosters don't like Harson, and I hate the boosters because, well, I don't really know why everyone hates the boosters, but they do. So it really makes no sense to me. But I I do think that this could potentially help Harson's public image around the fans because of the fact that you know, Alan Green, who apparently was loved by the entire fan base, is gone. So now they're just going to run to Harson's defense because he's kind of the last guy that, quote-unquote, didn't bow down to the boosters. But it's just an interesting situation. But, yeah. Yeah, I think we need an athletic director that has some kind of pull and does a little bit better I really, I really think that it started with the Harson situation. I don't know how many contacts Alan Green has in the football world. That's the Alan Green is a non-football athletic director, and Auburn needs the opposite of that because we're set. Like the the non-football sports at Auburn are fine, and they're going to be fine. Like it doesn't matter who the athletic director is. All you have to do is say yes, Bruce, and yes, Butch, and those programs are going to be fine. The board of trustees are not going to let Butch or Bruce go. They're going to sign whatever they're building, you know. And they trust trust Bruce and Butch's judgment for when they say, hey, we need this. Yeah. The booster, if they're winning games and they say they need something, the boosters will give it to them. Exactly. So you don't need an athletic director that specializes in baseball or basketball. And that's what Alan Green special. Alan Green specialized in those two sports. He – He's a he's not a football guy. His contacts for the football, I mean, he hired a search agency. And the reason that it was probably a train wreck in those interviews is because Allen doesn't know squat about football. He has no experience hiring football coaches or doing anything like that for anywhere near a program like Auburn. Buffalo is not Auburn. So that's why they got rid of him, I think. Yeah, I completely agree with that. I, I think that Auburn will be for the best because of this decision, but 
Only time will tell, and we'll be back next week to uh, break down the Mercer game. Auburn, in all likelihood, will be 1-0. We'll be previewing San Jose State, and we'll probably have a few names that we can actually talk about about the AD search. That'll be a little bit more knowledge enough that we're allowed to talk about it on the podcast. But as always, thank you guys for listening, and War Eagle. War Eagle.